Hello and welcome to Never Press News, the podcast which will give you an insight into the lives and minds of the most motivated and inspirational people I have the pleasure of knowing. I'm Tony Musgrave and this is Never Press News. Hello and welcome to Never Press News, Season 1, Episode 7. I'm here with Carl Russian today. Um, Normally I start the podcast by saying how we met. But this one's a little bit different because it's the first time we've actually ever, ever met in person, face to face. So um, how do I know, Carl? Well, we met through uh, social media, but we have um, some things in common. I used to serve with um, Carl's brother in the forces at 216. He was one of the instructors on my uh, pre-parachute course when I was uh, a little bit younger. And uh, unfortunately, Lloyd was killed in Afghanistan. A number of years ago and we've kept in contact since then um we moved in slightly different circles me and lloydie uh he he had a group of friends i had a group of friends but certainly a massive mutual respect there from one airborne brother to another and we just ended up chatting on social media one time i recognized some of the stuff he was doing and i was interested in it and we've kept in touch ever since when i started to put the podcast together i had a list of people that inspired me for various reasons and you was on there mate so welcome to the show no, massive pleasure and very humbling, buddy. Thank you. No problem, mate. Um, so, uh, apart from being a Spurs fan, we're not going to talk about <laughs> any of that today. I've said on previous ones, I'll mention it, but we're not going to talk about it, especially Spurs. Tell us a bit about yourself, mate. Um, I'm obviously Carl. Uh, I'm a, I'm nearly 48, just clinging on. Um, uh, try to do a fair bit to keep myself fit. Um, obviously a lot of it in tribute to Lloydie that's how it all began really um, I'm married to Caroline and have a little boy called Charlie Charlie's a Spurs fan as well isn't Charlie's it? a massive Spurs fan uh, massive. I've, mine's not worked out the way it should do I was just telling you before wasn't I he, uh, my boy comes home and he wants to be a West Ham fan and that's devastating to a Man United fan but I just have to <laughs> deal with it so um, tell everyone what you do for a living what you're up to at the minute just give us a little bit of a brief about you I'm um, uh, I'm a well, it's very hard to define actually what I do do for a living I think we talked on the about this earlier I literally firefight most of my life I, uh, I run a team of technicians um, in a in a structural engineering company for quite a big consultant um, working on some major projects in the UK and and internationally um, that's probably about the crux of it, I reckon. Well, you're fortunate enough because I'm looking out the window here to work in some of the uh, yeah. nicest parts of, uh, of the, London. The Gherkin. Yeah, it's right next in door. In the shadow so, of the Gherkin. Yeah, we're in, uh, <laughs> we're in a lovely part of London, but you don't live in London now. You no, live in Bedford? Yeah, I live just uh, in between Bedford and Milton Keynes. Um, so I'm about 60, 70 miles outside of, outside of work. So... Uh, a decent commute on a daily basis. Yeah, I was going to say, you don't run it, no, no. I try to. <laughs> I think um, I'd, I'd given the opportunity, I probably would. Yeah, you've you've not always lived in Bedford, though. Um, no, I'm we an share boy. Another thing in common yeah. is I'm now, someone's going to kill me for saying this, but I am officially an Essex boy. Uh, I've lived in Essex longer than I lived in Manchester, I think, now. So it's uh, it. uh, the only thing I've tried to do is just keep a little bit of the accent just to make sure yeah, I don't fully turn into Essex. But, um, yeah, I've been here a long time. And when we got chatting, it turns out that we share geographical locations. Yeah. You you grew up to, in the area yeah. that I, I live in. Yeah, I, I used to spend my summer holidays in uh, down at Dunton Lakes yeah. with my granddad because he used to work for Shell at Corringham. 
Um, so it's many a many a many a day during the summer holidays trying to pedal my nan's rather pretty bike with a her basket on the front up horned and heel. Nice look. <laughs> That's a good look. It's a very strong look for a six, seven year old. <laughs> yeah. Where you can't actually touch the pedals. Yeah. So um, tell me about growing up then. Talk to me about you and Lloydie growing up in um, Essex. How, how, how was that? Um, well, I'm, I'm the oldest of six. Um, wow, but, I never knew there were yeah, six of Yeah, there were six of us. Well, there's, there's, well, in essence, there still is, but um, I was the oldest. Uh, my mum had me when she wasn't much older than 16. Um, Lloydie came along seven years later. Um, we obviously grew up in... Well, I was raised originally in, in Kelverden. We moved to Silver End and then Whittam and pretty much spent most of my growing up years in Whittam. And then once I moved out of home, sort of took myself off just about everywhere, really. Um, but obviously, from an early age, Lloydie and I, I always just remember Lloydie being born and sort of a lot of my focus became about... So you were like you seven years old at the yeah, time? Yeah, seven years older than Lloydie. Big brother. Uh, big brother, yeah. It was a... Yeah, cause I, my my brother there is next to us. He's like sort of same dad because we had separate uh, different dads, Lloydie and I and Jamie and I and Jamie and I were like eighteen months apart, but we just fought like cat and dog. Really. You and Jamie did. Yeah, he was very much sort of mummy's boy really, and I wasn't quite mummy's boy. And I think um, I think Lloydie was the proper opportunity to feel like a proper big brother. Like you know? a big brother. Yeah. So. Um, I was always pretty close to, to Lloydie. So you just said, like you said, seven years between you, he yeah. comes along and now you've got someone to beat up. Or get beaten up. I'll get beaten up. There's like. some great pictures actually of, of him. I think I'd been out on, obviously being that little bit older, like I think it must have been one of the first nights out of like at work and I've come home and I'm in not in too good a state and he's, in, he's got my boxing gloves on and he's beating the crap out of me. <laughs> I'm just yeah, hanging out my back. There's nothing I can do no. on this one. <laughs> nothing you can do. So what was that relationship like then? What what memories do you have of you and Lloydie growing up then? Well just just doing whatever I I mean I I I almost got a criminal record for like for him at one point. It's like Tell us about that. Oh uh, there used to be a little a little shop called what it was it used to be the original supermarket, VG's at the Little Elms in Whitton. And I remember taking him to mum, like my mum had sent me off to the shops to get some shopping, and he was bawling the whole way round, and he like bawling about sweets, <laughs> and like literally, I, mean, I didn't have any money for sweets because we didn't have any money for sweets. It was like I'm the like single parent family, and there's like a few of us to, and obviously I can't spend money on sweets because that's just not. You've been go given that a list. Yeah, mate. I've been given a list, and that's it. That's just what I've got, and I nicked, well, I tried to nick. Shows how good a thief I am. I tried to nick a cream egg and didn't even get out the bloody door. Um, and that's it. The next thing I know, I'm obviously hauled over the coals by the security as they were in those days. And like, I'm in this back room with my brother screaming because he obviously didn't get what he wanted. And I've just been nick, trying to nick something for I him. I mean, there's some stuff to get arrested for know, in life. But cream egg. Criminal records for stealing <laughs> cream eggs, mate. That's, you're not going down in the history books no, with that one. No. That's for sure. And I think as penance, I used to then just drag him around Rickstone's uh, Rickstone's uh, school field just collecting my golf balls when we got a bit older. You just whack up and he'd go and get them. Just make cheese, That's why he ended yeah. up so fit. You yeah, just exactly. hit it and he would run off. And... No, he needed, he, he needed to lose a bit of that at that point. He was a little bit, I don't know if you remember me, the early, probably in the early days. He used to throw the javelin for school because obviously being slightly bigger lad, that's what you got to do. 
Lloydie was always quite chunky when we were Slightly growing up. Slightly bigger. That's like the politest way anyone's ever said what you're trying Lloydie to say. Lloydie needed to lose some timber. Yeah. Um, but obviously you did that over time anyway, because obviously you started like the army cadets and things like that. So he spent a fair amount of time doing stuff and getting himself fit. But yeah, I mean, it's like, yeah, Lloydie, Lloydie, was, Lloydie was a little bit of a funky chunkster in his, in his early days. So you, days. you will have then, so after seven years, he would have still been at school when you've gone yeah. to university then, is that? Yeah, no, I didn't, I literally, when I literally left home at 16, so um, I literally, I took the first, I was offered a job actually on work experience whilst I was doing my A-levels and that was it. I sort of got offered the job. I think I was sort of almost press ganged into taking it because uh, it was, yeah. If yeah, I think um, I think my mum thought it was the right thing to the do. Right, the right decision. Yeah, <laughs> this is the problem with a podcast. You start yeah, telling a story, then you have I to know. you have to think about it, yeah. and it actually tells you all of the uh, the things you knew all along. Which was kind of, I mean, it was kind of cool because obviously it was doing something I wanted to want to do, and that was drawing. In essence, I mean, I wanted to go to university or to art school or something like that. That's really what my passion was: was really painting and yeah. and art, and I. I used to love that side of things. It used to just give me like that sort of release, you know, but sort of... Do you still do any of that now? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I went back to uni. We talked about this earlier when Lloyd and Lloydie was training or going on selection for PF and we were talking about, the, we had the conversation about me going in as well and him trying to encourage me to do so. And I went back to uni and did landscape architecture because really that's where my passion is, is actually in the creation in the, the creative side of things wow that's amazing um, and obviously now my job is very different to that it's yeah. all just it's very much firefighting and looking after people leadership roles leadership isn't roles. it yeah that's it you don't get to do the creative side of things and now it's actually quite nice because I'll sit there with, with Charlie and we'll sit there and draw Stormtroopers or yeah. Star Wars or Boba Fett or any character from Star Wars or, or whatnot. so it's kind of it'll get to the point I dare say at some point I'll get the opportunity to paint and do those sort of things again but it's like life's too busy there's the so minute. much going on there's so much going on yeah just... I mean I've got a list of things that's going on that I want to cover in the podcast painting's not on there but no, I'll, no, add, it's not on I'll there. add that to the list no. I think it's so, I'd actually think back to actually painting when I was at school and it almost feels a little bit inappropriate now that my my art teacher used to sort of kind of lock me away and when you say it like that it just feels a bit yeah. feels a bit weird well there's it certainly wouldn't be allowed now. No, so, exactly. Uh, you wouldn't be getting away with locking children yeah. away now. No, I think art was encouraged from that point of view, but yeah, I think that seems a little bit, yeah, a little bit weird now. So you've gone off, started your new job. Yeah. Um, Lloyd is growing up as a teenager and then obviously makes a decision to join the army. Yeah. Where was you when all of that happened then? Where was I? God, crikey. Um, I'm trying to think where I was actually. I mean, I think I'd moved up to Birmingham at that point with the same company. <laughs> But again, as is normal, you signed of meet somebody in a nightclub and it was at King's at the time. Okay. King's nightclub, yeah. King's nightclub when we used to play like football and we used always used to end up there Thursday to Sunday night. Is that the one on the Yeah, at Mars the eight, Tate. I was just gonna say it's yeah. on the one two seven, isn't yeah, it? The it? Side of the well road. it's no longer there, is it? No, it's not there now. It's gone now. But yeah, that used to be the So that was board. working in Birmingham but Living in Colchester. Well, no, at the point I was still living like sort of in Essex area at the time, but I'd met a girl in there one night, and she happened to be living. She lived near Leamington Spa, and eventually I took. Well, not eventually. It wasn't very long. I actually ended up moving up to be with her, um, and I think at that point Lloydie had just about 
was just about going on to yeah he would have been doing obviously basic yeah. down at uh, Blanford yeah um, I think he he didn't pass first didn't pass out first time around because of an injury and had to wait so what what year would this be though then oh, when crikey well we probably that must be around about 95 96 yeah so we're similar we're similar entry time yeah. Yeah. I was 96 time so I think yeah. he might have been slightly ahead of me I'm not entirely sure but yeah so we're talking yeah mid 90s mid 90s yeah yeah but yeah I think he obviously tried to go in at 17 but had an issue with a knee knee injury and I think it was literally nine to 12 months later eventually he got the all clear to go again um so I think he he was pretty much 18 by the time he actually when he did got basic in. yeah yeah so yeah what would that be yeah 96 97 ish yeah Yes, it sounds about about yeah. the right date. So it's, it's mid, yeah, mid to late to late nineties, yeah. isn't it? Then. So then he went to, did where did he go first? Did he go straight to two one six? Yeah, he went straight to two one six. Um, I remember reading some of his actual reports. I remember his OC used to write that he wouldn't amount to much and didn't like taking orders. And... Generally, the way, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, well, actually, to if, be fair, I knew that of him anyway. Yeah, I was going to say, he was <laughs> always wondered, must have been right then, because yeah. I remember some of my school reports saying exactly the same. You know, you'll amount to nothing. They were but, pretty bang on, to be well, fair. I always remember wondering why he chose the army as his career, because he was terrible at taking any sort of instruction. Any sort of instruction. I mean, he, I think he had a relatively checkered time at school. I mean, he did all right, but he didn't like taking any sort of order in terms of authority um it was quite <laughs> yeah it didn't feel like the perfect like, yeah map, career map yeah boy, but like you've naturally migrated to something yeah, that yeah. isn't really appropriate yeah. but obviously i think it, army cadets obviously conditioned him a little bit for that kind of that kind of opportunity and obviously as we know now he he, he grasped that with, with both hands well yeah hands. i mean it's quite a uh, remarkable few years following on from yeah. there isn't it so, um, you both lived in Colchester together for a period of time as well, is that correct? Um, when no, he was in the army? Well, it, when that... he was in, yeah, I mean, when he was based there, I was living in Collie anyway. I, I mean, I used to just, I, I'd lived in Chelmsford or Collie, and luckily, obviously, I spent a fair amount of time living in Collie as well whilst he was stationed in Collie, um, even when he was at EOD at Saffron Walden. Oh, Saffron yeah, they Walden. moved, yeah, they were up at Saffron Walden, weren't they? Which is, so, yeah. I mean, that wasn't a million miles away. No. Um, but he wasn't there for very long anyway before he came back. Um, it's a great place to live, Colchester, by yeah. the way. Oh, we, I moved there probably year 2000, something like that, 2001, after I'd done P Company. And they, I was saying in one of the previous podcasts with Terry Frank, they were knocking the barracks down. Yeah. So none of us lived in, in the barracks because it was all being renovated. We all had houses in town. Yeah. We got extra cash. It was literally <laughs> like pop star life. It was as close to being Robbie Williams yeah. as you possibly could really? be. You'd have Love all it. this money that you'd obviously yeah. spend it all in the first weekend. But yeah, we'd just really a great place to live. Oh, it's a great town. Love it. Love it. I do miss it. You still but, come back to Essex now and again, yeah, don't you? Yeah, we've still obviously got family there so we spend as much time as we possibly can, great, uh, can get there. A lot of well, most of my friends are still that way anyway. Um, I mean, we're we are quite lucky in so much as Kaz's family are pretty much where we are, and not too far away. But obviously, my family and friends really are quite centric into into Essex, so it's kind of 
Yeah. I kind of miss not having them nearby most of the time, but so we kind of make up for it when we do, when you do come back. Yeah. Yeah. So how did he not persuade you? This is a question that I've been mulling over. How did he not persuade you to join up? You'd think that would be quite a uh, easy sell, both living in the same town. Yeah, I think I just, I think at that point I'd kind of made my peace with the notion that I was going on to do other things. I'd kind of, I'd spent nine years doing the job I was doing in working for the civil consultant that I had and sort of had a, I'd had enough and um, I'd made the choice that I was going to go back to uni and study something a bit more of sort of my kind of passion as it were and uh, I just think I think at the age of what I would have been what 32 32 well just coming up to 30 no, just coming up to 30 yeah I just thought I don't know if that's really for me, to start um, that whole to start that process whole, again, yeah, feel like, yeah. I mean, feeling like a you'd a have to come, bag of, yeah, you'd have to come all the way back, <laughs> yeah, all the way back. Being, Although it's like you're 16 when you're 30, yeah. Which I, actually, actually going back to university, it was a lot like that. Well, I, was I, was gonna in, say, I was in the halls for a while, so yeah, it was like it the weirdest feeling ever. It's not much difference, <laughs> but yeah, I remember I joined when I started. I was in basic training. There was a guy in there. I think the age limit at the time had been extended to like 35. And there was a guy in there who was 33 years old. Yeah. And the majority of us were like 17. We was in the wrong place, for yeah. starters. We was children in a man's world. But I almost felt like he must have thought, yeah. what have I done to deserve this? Like yeah. a room of 15 children and 33-year-old man with a couple of kids at home. Yeah. He had left the army and then joined back up again. So I think he was going to get yeah. fast-tracked and, and move through at some pace, well, to be fair. It's weird now, because I look back, I think actually knowing what I know now, or obviously being in the sort of condition and shape I'm in now, I almost feel like there's a little pang of regret that I didn't do it. But by the same token, obviously after losing Lloyd, not because we lost Lloydie, I'm kind of glad I didn't, because I know that's his thing. His thing now, yeah. You know, it's not just, there's no, because when we lost Lloydie, there was a lot of stuff thrown at me because of the responsibility I was given when we lost Lloydie about obviously looking after his estate and things like that. When I started doing certain challenges, certain members of people that were supposed to be family and friends were saying, oh, you're just trying to live Lloydie's life. Yeah. You, no, you don't get it. You, That's a bit of a... You don't kind of get it. It's not about that. It's about just paying tribute to the boy and just sort of trying to do, raise a bit of money for do something good in his name, which is obviously all this has ever been about. But from that point of view, I'm kind of glad now that I didn't. That you didn't. You've got you've got your thing. Yeah. He's got his thing. And that was great because we've always had that. And the nice thing was that we always met in the middle, you know, with some mutual respect yeah. for each other. As... And we were we were cut from the same cloth, so it was not like I had or we would have had anything to prove to one another. Yeah. In that regard. Because although there was like seven years difference between us, it's like I've said this before and I've said it many times, and I know you obviously attributed it in the in like the post. It's like he was my little brother, but I looked up to him as much as obviously yeah, he, clearly he did mutual. Me. Yeah, you know it was. Obviously, I'm I am not was I am extremely proud of the boy, because he he took his opportunities and he decided that he was going to achieve what at the top level that he could achieve doing what he wanted to do. And, and, and he certainly did that. that, yeah. So, I don't. I mean, this is probably a 
really emotional subject for you to talk about. Um, so please, if, if, if it goes anywhere you don't want it to go, just cut the mic. But I just, I, I was trying to put it into perspective on the way here of how, and I think you can only ever empathise with people that have gone through this situation. Yeah. I, I don't know what that feels like. I've got a younger sister. I kind of know what I think I would feel like if that happened, but I just want to try to get your perspective, like when you found out, where was your, yeah. how, how did that news well, I arrive? Was I was here. Uh, it was literally 10 o'clock in the morning and it didn't, I mean, it was a normal day. I'd obviously come in, we were living in Milton Keynes at the time, so I'd come in like my normal train journey from Milton Keynes to Euston, walked in from Euston, cup of coffee, got to my desk, been at work about, I don't know, an hour, hour and a half, and I get a phone call from my sister. And again, that wasn't unusual because it's like literally, I was expecting a phone call from her because she was just looking to, or they were she was going to find out the sex of her her baby so obviously she phoned and she was in an absolute shit state couldn't decipher anything that she was saying and obviously eventually deciphered the fact that Lloyd had been shot and I just remember actually one of my guys who still works in my team here he stood up because I was actually standing up and obviously must have seen that I wasn't right. And I just looked at him and remember saying, Lloyd has been killed. And the next thing I know, one of the directors has actually walked through the, the office and obviously again seen something that didn't look right in me, put his arm around my shoulder and dragged, or not dragged me, but obviously walked me into one of the other directors' office and they both sat me down and I talked him through what had gone on. And they literally just look, just put me in a room on my own, told Mary, who's obviously again still here, uh, the receptionist here, just nobody's to disturb me. I need, I needed just to obviously make calls, I had to phone home again just to actually get obviously confirmation of what my sister had just told me because obviously half of it I couldn't understand and I was still trying to get my head around it. And obviously then I had to phone home to Kaz to say what had happened try and get myself home and I remember actually that whole process of like between I think I must have got myself home about 12 o'clock but between actually finding out and actually getting to the I remember actually just literally getting through the barriers at Milton Keynes station saw Kaz and I completely broke I mean I just crumpled completely you managed to hold it together I hold it together just to get, get out of work get back to sort of home saw Kaz and that was it I was just I was just in bits and Literally, she, she drove us home. I don't even remember that. And I just remember going straight upstairs because I'd literally, the day Lloyd had, um, had left, see, he'd posted his last will and testament and his final wishes to me. And I received them on the day that he, the day after he'd left. And obviously, I put them in my bedside table and thought, nothing more of it. I won't need them. Won't need them. Yeah. And obviously, it, that was it. I just went straight to that. It's quite a realistic thing to have to do as a, as a young man. I remember mm. having to do it myself, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of listeners mm. that have done that. It's kind of taken a little bit tongue-in-cheek, maybe. Well, because... Yeah, you read it. You read his words, and it is, it's like, it's it's so typically Lloydy. It was like written in the way he speaks. I mean, I could. it was almost like I was having a conversation with him. It was really right. And like you say, it is very much quite, almost blasé to a certain degree. 
Yeah. Other than the fact that there is some very, very def- definitive instructions in there. I think the key message in those is the instructions of what they want. Yeah. But yeah. The, the, I remember boxing all of my kit up before we went to all three operational tours, but mostly Afghanistan because I think that was probably the one that felt the most serious at yeah. that moment in time. It ha- It felt like it had the most... Potential yeah. for severe yeah. consequences. Well, I think um, I felt that from this that final tour as well because she, just before he went out, his wife had given birth to their daughter. Yeah, I think all of a sudden he felt a sense of his own mortality all of a sudden, and obviously all of a sudden had something. I wouldn't say to live for is the right word, but also all of a sudden. Yeah, he didn't I, feel quite as invincible. As I he, totally he understand where you're coming from, and so I went on to all three operational tours, um, pretty much single, mm. um, and also had had no children. Um, I shared my sleeping area with a guy whose wife had just given birth as well. Yeah, um, he it was different for him mm. than it was for me. Yeah, it was a completely different tour, yeah. and. I'm not sure how they did that because I, I look at my children now and I see them and I think I would never go away. I was joking with Arnie yeah. last night saying, if you carry on picking me, I'm going to join the army again and bugger off. Like, and he's like, oh, please don't go. And I was, you know, not, not a nice joke, yeah. a bit of a cruel joke. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was a bit like, like for those guys, there's a few of them and there's one coming up in the show later, in the series later on, Andy Dunn, a very good friend of mine. Yeah. He, he had children as well when we went to Iraq and, I'm not entirely sure how those guys did it. I don't know if I would have been emotionally strong enough yeah. to um, to pack up that gear and, and get on a plane when I knew I was leaving behind some children. So, yeah, it must have been a, yeah. a d- still a difficult decision. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, I'm, I don't know if it was just sort of because it was his first tour, obviously, with the guys down at Hereford, whether that sort of made it, I wouldn't say easy is the right word, but almost felt like I think if he'd maybe had had a, a bit of time behind him already in the regiment that maybe he'd decided that enough's enough. But by the same token, obviously, you know what they're like. Once you're in there doing that sort of job and you've kind of got yourself there, you want to be doing it. I think there's also that, yeah. I, I mean, I can't speak for anyone. I certainly was not in the Special Forces by any stretch, but what I think there is a little bit of that. Like, once you put your bag on, yeah. You jump on the plane, yeah. whatever it is you're doing, you've got to really isolate that section yeah. of your life because that's why I, I suppose the reason I think I couldn't do it is because I think it would distract me too much. Yeah. It would be too busy in my mind all the time and the inability to concentrate on yeah. whatever your job in hand is, whatever that may be. Um, but yeah, that must have been difficult for him to go out there. How yeah. old was his daughter at the time? Well, she was nine weeks when, when he left. Wow. No, nine weeks when he was killed, so six, yes, just over, just just came up six weeks when he left because um, she was born a couple of days before his birthday um, and he went yeah literally a month later so yeah I mean it was yeah I mean it's just being that was really quite surreal and I do I mean that actual that moment I remember just getting home and just sort of going to my bedside cabinet going completely into um, a, a very methodical mindset so, okay this is what Lordy expected of me obviously open up the last will and testament and his final wishes and then start reading his words and completely broke again because it was always this thing I mean you know, typical reg you'd nick everything or acquire everything 
and he spent most of his life growing up with me either trying to swap stuff with me that he wanted <laughs> or stealing it or and or just yeah somehow it ended up on his back regardless and I remember when I when I first started work and I kind of said to myself I kind of promised myself a decent watch as you do when you're younger and you think actually if I, yeah. I get myself a decent watch I know I'm doing alright I've all right. done alright for myself yeah and I bought myself this Rolex and it was literally I couldn't have had it on my wrist more than a few moments and he saw it and he says so when you give me that then <laughs> it's typical, it like little, typical little brother fashion and obviously when I woke up, opened up his last will and testament and he'd put in there he'd left me his Omega Seamaster his regiment issue one little fuck that's, you can swear yeah. it's all right <laughs> little fuck that's not how it's supposed to be obviously it was always going to be at some point he'd have my watch not yeah. the other way around and it, it, he hadn't even worn the watch I mean it's I mean, if you ever seen, I mean, they're, they're a stunning thing. I mean, all he ever, he was literally in his, obviously in his crate in Afghan with him and obviously got bought back. He'd actually had it resized. That was it. It's the only time he'd actually worn it. And obviously I, he left it to me and that's just, yeah, it just kind of just broke me completely, I think, at that yeah. point. Do you think yeah, yeah. just no, this isn't the way it's meant to be? It was, if, if anything, it was yeah. supposed to be the other way around. Yeah. I remember actually even get to the point where when I went to see him at the chapel arrest and I I had to stop myself from putting my watch in his in his casket because I thought actually even he would probably think no that's fucking stupid bro. <laughs> that's stupid just, just calm your beans just, yeah just, just calm your beans yeah. we're but, all emotional yeah, yeah. we're all emotional but, here you don't need to give yeah, me your watch I don't need now. to leave me Rolex behind in your in your casket but I mean just before he went it was his birthday like obviously not before it was his birthday and I remember actually when the super dry jackets come out, like the yeah, three yeah. zipped ones, and I bought one. We were in Colchester together shopping, and it was like the first time they'd come out, and like we used to go shopping in Collie a lot. I bought this jacket, and it's like literally I'm putting on and said, that looked good on me. Yeah. <laughs> Will you stop? Seriously, dude. <laughs> on your own like, stuff. So like, and literally for his birthday, that birthday, I bought him one, just before, like just obviously before he went. And um, so that's what I did. I actually left my jacket my my one my original one in his in his coffin which is uh that felt like a um a much more sensible decision to make instead of the, putting the Rolex, the, the Rolex. yeah i think we all get we all understand that mate. i think you made the right choice there yeah probably so um his funeral yeah his funeral Bring was just, uh, just i've never seen so many people in trying to be in one space it was I mean, I think they said there was something like about 900 people present and or watching on screens because they obviously transmitted it all over the place as well. And there was like marquees outside the chapel that people were stood under. I think there's two or three marquees of people just... What what year was it? 2011. 11, wasn't it? I mean, even yeah. the repat was just... I was just going to ask about the, that. The yeah. repat. I mean, the repat was just horrible. I mean, just... I, I can't now listen to a Chinook now just for the so see that's they brought him home or they brought him back to Hereford in the in the Chinook and um it's like you heard that thing coming from yeah. from miles and now just every time I hear it obviously it, it takes me straight back to that that day um and it's it's I mean it's as majestic as as those things are and that sound is it's just always triggers that sort of yeah, so it's funny, isn't it? Sound smells, things yeah. like that, that that generate 
emotion or a memory. Yeah. The Chinook for me would be a nice sound yeah. because it would generally just be bringing going home. resupply yeah. <laughs> yeah, letters, <laughs> parcels, yeah. something would Good be stuff. coming on it. Yeah. Or you'd be getting on it and getting out of there. Yeah, yeah so well, that's obviously wasn't... how we went. Because, I mean, he was, they were, the, obviously the mission at the time was taking high value targets. And that's, it, they, that just as they were lifting out on the Chinook, they took small arms fire. And the next thing they know, they already slumped and one shot through the, through the temple. I mean, that's the only place that obviously he could have been hit because everywhere else was covered. Covered up. So, um, yes, the Chinook now is kind of, yeah, it's not a nice sound. Not a nice sound for you. But, I mean, when you go back to the funeral as well, I mean, it's, it was just, it was incredible actually just to see the amount of people there that obviously had such admiration for him. Not just as a as a soldier, but just as a person. And I remember, because I I delivered a eulogy for him, which to this day I'll still never understand how I got the courage to do. But you kind of find it from someone. I think actually, almost to a certain degree, I probably I think he probably had a lot to do with that. But it In was what way? well, I don't know. It just almost felt like he was there, you know, in a in a daft kind of way. Because I remember actually practicing. The words standing in the mirror like you do trying to not sound like a complete and utter tit <laughs> when you're talking yeah. about all the things that are emotional and um poignant to you as as a big brother and a friend and everything else and obviously trying to capture those those kind of words for not just yourself but for everybody that might have meant something to him and i think that was the the first time Ironically, somehow that I managed to deliver what I was trying to say without erring in any way. So I kind of think, well, somehow did he just sort of calm me down enough just to get those to get it out three, three, four, or five minutes or whatever it was, just to get it out, you know? Because I mean, it's horrible when you're kind of walking from like the uh, where you sat to actually walk past his coffin. It's obviously draped with a Union Jack and his beret sitting on top of it, not to. Not to completely douche your shit, really. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so it was quite something, his funeral. And obviously the guys all jumped in and did the did the proper tribute to him in, in, in quite some fashion as yeah, well. Yeah, it's certainly some yeah. deserved uh, tribute. Yeah, it felt... Yeah, you kind of don't want to be there, obviously, but it felt that they couldn't have actually... Uh, created a more special tribute to someone or to one of their own in the way that they did um, and you think obviously the amount of, he didn't we obviously have an awful lot of time there but I mean he would have had a, a lot of the time with the guys that he served with because a lot of the guys he served with were he was in the regiment with were in PF with him as well and sort of gone for other sort of um, jobs and courses with I mean there's a small circle of them isn't mm. there so they will have spent time yeah. together whether that be on their yeah, exactly. um, high altitude yeah. jumps or whether that's yeah. uh, specific training courses yeah. or whatever that they're involved in so they will yeah. certainly show that you know that they'll have known each other yeah and he was I know he, I mean you just listen to the words I mean he was held in in very high regard um, and everyone I've ever spoken to since has always said the same thing they've got nothing but good things to say about say about the boy and um yeah, I mean, it's just, I think he would just do anything for anybody. And um, 
And I, I mean, I know that from my own personal. I mean, he was always there when I needed him, and I know from speaking to people that he would do whatever he could just to make sure that guys were just looked after and or, well, you know. So what were the, the months afterwards like? Obviously, there's a the repatriation yeah. you have to go through. There's quite a... Um, the months afterwards, it was kind of... I spent... I probably had about six months where I was trying to sort his estate out. So really, I know from my own point of view, for those first, for that first half a year, really, I didn't sort of give in to the grief, as it were, or didn't actually register that I was grieving because I had so much going on trying to think about, trying to sort out for him and bits like that. And um, I don't think it was really until sort of the beginning of 2012 where I really started to sort of trying to start to, or not process it because obviously I wasn't dealing with it particularly well. I think once I'd sorted everything I needed to sort out, all of a sudden then it kind of hit me pretty hard. Um, Do you think you'd not taken that time? Or, or did that was that time even available to grieve? Yeah, I was going to say, I don't even think... Uh, well, it was probably a combination of the two things. I think it, I was quite happy to have that responsibility because it meant I didn't have to be thinking... Yeah. Because I know I found it very difficult when you kind of sort of... You're in bed, you can't sleep because you're thinking about what's going on your other half is laying next to you, but they're obviously they're not feeling the same sort of level of pain as you are, but they're they're rested and they're quite and I'm just laying there thinking about all the things and all the unanswered questions that you've got because you obviously don't get all the answers that you need. Um because the one person you want those answers from ain't can't give you them. Can't give you them. So you, you spend weeks and months of sort of sort of in the in the dark hours, the dark wee hours just trying to get rest but you can't and I think obviously in those times I sort of I didn't I don't even think I grieved then I think I just spent my whole time wondering about what ifs and god knows what else and it wasn't really until probably I sorted finished sorting like his estate out and everything else that went with it where I started to actually um I wouldn't even say get my head around it but grieve but even by then it was it wasn't sort of a in a good way so obviously everything became very difficult my mood obviously was very very different I found it very difficult to be tolerant with people especially we all find it difficult to be tolerant of idiots but <laughs> even more so the, yeah. the, the level of intolerance um, went up and I think it wasn't really until I started thinking or finding a focus in terms of trying to actually think about trying to manage and how I dealt with that in a positive way that I, I kind of got a handle on it. You, you certainly can't be excused for going into the mode you went into initially because yeah. I think pretty much most people who are going through some grieving process, including myself in previous years, you need your brain occupied, don't you? Mm. You need yeah. to start to do some So organisation, yeah. arrangements, taking clutter away, it feels, yeah. it feels amazing. It feels like small achievements throughout that but you made a point there about those dark hours and mm. they're the bits when there's nothing in your head and everybody else has gone to sleep that's yeah. the time when you start to start to question all of those things and I, I genuinely don't know how you you know in in other circumstances there's certainly some things you can get answers from from doctors from yeah. You haven't got that information available no. to you. And of course, it's not about it because it just it just isn't. I mean, at there. the end of the day, you you're dealing with a 
in essence, obviously with a regiment that won't be making those sort of details available anyway, you won't get all the answers that you need. Um, and obviously you're not there at the time. And the guys that were there at the time can't speak about things at the time either. So, and honestly, I go back, I mean, it's only questions in so much as obviously when I read the report, most of it's blacked out because that's the nature of the you. job. It's not, yeah. So yeah. you kind of then start, because naturally you've got so many questions and you can't have them answered that in that sort of, in that sort of role and the job that he had, it leaves a lot of unanswered questions. And not just for for me, for everybody that sort of... Yeah, I mean, it's... So it's... He's got his, his yeah. partner, he's got... Yeah, exactly. You know, other members yeah. of his family. Yeah. Everyone's probably in the same yeah. situation with unanswered questions. How did you... So you said there your coping mechanisms once yeah. you started to see something out the other side. What what was that? Well, literally, obviously, I, I'd taken a look at... I'd got to the point where I started taking a look at myself and realising that wouldn't say let myself go is the right thing but obviously moving up to be with Caroline I'd sort of stop doing all the things that I would normally do like play football and everything else that would keep me active and keep me fit because obviously I had no friends up there I don't I kind of I'm pretty comfortable with my my group I'm very almost I wouldn't say socially awkward I'm socially awkward at first because I find I, I'm quite shy and quite difficult to come out of my shell until I know people once I'm out of there, that's it. You can't stop me. I'm, I'm just ridiculous. I'm like a dog chasing cars. <laughs> um, I get far too excited when I'm around people that I sort of, I've, I've, I've allowed myself to be comfortable with. But of course, so I'm, I've stopped doing all the things that I'm passionate about and or that have kept me on a, a decent level. And you kind of look at yourself and think, right, okay, I'm nearly 17 and a half stone here. I'm struggling to put my socks on in the morning. It's a bit of an effort. I'm now wearing 38-inch trousers. I'm wearing 44, 46-inch jackets because that's the only way I can get it buttoned up around my gut. And um, was, was it just is... lack of exercise or yeah. was drinking? Or... No, no, there was no drinking. I've never been a big drinker other than obviously your normal binge with your mates when you all get together. That's kind of it. I don't drink during the week. Never really have. Um just stop the exercise just stop the exercise and obviously carry on eating at the same sort of level that you kind of do when you're kind of used to doing the sort of level of like training that I used to do I've spoke about in a couple of the podcasts one of the one of the many things that the traits that people have that have been inspiring to me and I think the lady on the last one joked about meeting people in a gym all the time Mm. but and I mentioned it last week, that level of self-care is generally there. And I was chatting about it at work today. It's not always there just for the fitness element. No. It's the bit that keeps my brain going. Yeah. So the reason I got, I don't go to the gym necessarily to be fit. You know, them days are, yeah. are well past from, from forces days. I go because it's the bit that keeps me, for want of a better phrase, it keeps me sane. Yeah. So I have to keep that regularity of, yeah. you know, self-care, physical exercise. Yeah. And you've dropped that. At yeah. probably a time when you most needed it. Yeah, and it was, and it, it, you kind of get to, okay. I need to do something about this because I'm no longer the. Well, I'm not. I'm still the same guy underneath, but I'm not physically. The the guy that my brother would have recognised in so much as the guy that he would have gone out running with or indoor training with or, you know, and you're just looking at yourself thinking I I can't continue. I need to find a way of dealing with this. 
and obviously so I just I looked obviously at sort of challenges and just thought well I need to find something to do to give me some focus because it's the only way it's going to happen 40 years old or nearly 40 years old you're kind of you're not 20 anymore this this it's this not coming sh- easy this shit's not easy anymore <laughs> so and obviously I, I, I thought well what can we do and obviously the first thing I found was the Paris 10 and that was that was the September of 2012 so like literally the the year and a bit after Lloydie had passed. I so thought, was that Colchester? No, it's at Catterick. So there's two, isn't there? There's yeah. Colchester and Catterick. So yeah. for those that are listening, Paris 10, 10-mile yeah. speed march run, basically. £35. For, for, with £35. Full kit. And your time, that they, is it just an open time on that? Well, obviously, you still want to get the 150, don't you? Yeah, I was gonna. that's what I was going to say. It's <laughs> 150 for... Well, uh, yeah, well, the first year I did it... test on P Company. First year I did it was two for, two, 207. Okay. That stretched out to two twenty two one year. The bad year because I, I was, it was just literally I'd got myself in a relatively decent shape for that twenty for September twenty twelve, and it was also, I did Colchester the following month, literally the day before we flew out Kaz and I to Paphos to get married. So I mean, yeah, running things a little bit fine, and um, I did one fifty nine in Collie that year. Um, and I, I still had a fair bit of timber and I think I'd got myself down to, I'd got a couple of stone off, so I'd got myself down to about 15 stone, 14 and a half, 15 stone. And, um, then we found out about Charlie and of course baby comes along and all of a sudden I've gone from getting a fair bit of the weight off to putting it all back on again. So like kind of about six months after Charlie was born, Charlie was born in September of 2013. So about, I literally then signed myself up for the first London marathon that I've done since 20 odd years ago, uh, in 2014. And kind of, that was then the catalyst for kind of get myself back past where I'd got myself to after put the weight back on when Charlie, Charlie arrived. I'm just thinking, right, okay, I'm running the marathon now. I need to get some serious weight off because it was always going to be right. Well, I want to run four hours. Yeah. Um, and Obviously, to run four hours when you're nearely 17 and a half stone, it's not an easy feat. Because no. humanely, that's there's not... A guy, there's a guy doing it in a diver's suit. Exactly. Who's, who's on your tail. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that kind of became the catalyst then for um, sort of everything since, I think. And I, I, then, I did it again in 20... I, I literally missed the minute. Missed the... 401. The 401. And I remember, actually, at the time, I said to one of my mates, I might as well have done 415, because it... Makes no, it makes no bloody difference. I haven't broken four hours. And then the following year, I did it again. And I did it for the Soldiers Charity again, which is who I did it for in 2014. I did 3.41, so I'd knocked 20 minutes off of it. And obviously, at that point, things had started to click. And I'd started to think about doing other things. Yeah, I was, and I was still say, doing the Paris 10. And, I was going to say, you're kind of dipping yeah. your toe in quite a lot of things yeah. there, aren't you? But for want of a better phrase, without a direct route of where you're definitely yeah. going, but yeah. you're involved in a lot yeah. at that point. And I've, you well, know, it was just like doing events just to keep yourself focused on stuff, you know, so always having something to yeah, focus, to focus on, on in the, in the yeah. near future. And it was kind of just sort of picking events periodically for a year. So 2014, I literally did. Um, so I started off with the Paris 10 and I did that all. Well, I've done that obviously continuously since, I mean, I did it twice this year. And what this, times you get in now for that? Uh, I did one twenty four at Carrick. Yeah, that's this pretty year. rapid, mate. Right? Yeah, I was ninth. Yeah, that's pretty quick. Um, and I actually, that's quite weird because this year I look at that and it kind of, 
that's when it kind of hit me how far I've kind of progressed, you know. I mean, we're talking just under an hour yeah. difference to your yeah. first ever one. Yeah. If you're saying, what was it, two? Yeah, two. Well, the worst time I'd actually recorded up to that point was 2.22. So an hour, yeah. you've knocked an hour yeah. off, over 10 miles. Over 10 miles. I mean, for anyone who's listening right now, or of when we release it, is the, the Paris 10 is an event that, for, for a civilian event, yeah. The actual 10-miler is one of the tests on P Company and is significantly known as the ultimate airborne test. There's log races, milling, all of that Mm. stuff, but the one that sticks with you for me, 10-miler, especially when you get back into the squadron or into your battalions or wherever you go, because you're still expected to do that. That is a savage test. And for anyone who, you know, you're looking at 150, but that's once you pass... Yeah. 150 is not the number anymore it's as fast as you can yeah. go and usually the reason you're running it so fast is because on a friday you get to knock off the quicker you get in <laughs> the quicker you knock off like you literally want to get around this yeah. thing you're sweating out uh wkd blue from the hippodrome in colchester <laughs> um the lads will be laughing because they used to sell them yeah. for a pound a bottle you drink about 10 of them and then run a 10 miler the next day and absolute shit state but um yeah it signifies a a big test that to be pushing out yeah. an hour and 24 over 10 miles forget the number the yeah. fact that you've knocked an at entire hour years of age. at 40 odd years old yeah that's pretty significant and it does feel good because you kind of think yeah let's say go back that's the full circle you know and it kind of that's the first time i've actually thought about despite everything else that i've done in that period it kind of feels like the benchmark of how far how I've far you've traveled because yeah I mean, it's like I'm, I'm, the first time I did Catrick, I was, I think the field was about 600, 700, and I was 467th. Yeah. And obviously this and year. But no one's remembering. Yeah. And this year there was 1,000 people and I'm ninth. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, awesome, so, right. and this year as well, won both the, like the Civi Team Champion, like the Civi Team Tab, so like at Colchester and, and at Catrick. So it was. Yeah, I saw the pictures on Instagram, yeah. yeah. So it's been I mean that's held high regard for you, hasn't it? That yeah. Paris Ten as Yeah, an I love event. it as an event, it's brilliant. I mean I keep saying I'm trying to retire from doing it. But now obviously I think, right, okay, I've got one twenty four and I know a one twenty is pretty much gonna win. Yeah. One eighteen, one twenty is gonna and you think and I remember having a bit of a I I had a little bit of a, a wobbly moment at seven miles because my watch decided to give up on me as well and it kind of gets you into that mindset where you think <laughs> Yeah. Like a couple of minutes of just like having a hissy fit. Just keep going. Yeah. Run fast. So like literally I got myself sorted out and I thought, right, okay, and I just like like got to eight miles, thought, right, no, just smash it out now. You know what's left now? Yeah. CFT. I C F T left yeah. two miles fast as you can, eighteen minutes. <laughs> exactly. Run it quick, head down, ass yeah. up and, and yeah. get gone. So you've started to dip your toe a little bit in all these different events yeah. that you start to pull all this together. Yeah. Um, I don't know, I think I remembered uh, remembered to say it maybe at the beginning, Mr. Hundred Peaks, that's yeah. your uh, well, that, Instagram name. Yeah. So where did what where how did, did you formulate from? all this plan that was gonna well, start next... to be yeah, the natural right. progression felt like after doing the Paris 10, you kind of look at events to do and you think, well, what's the natural progression? And the thing I found was there was a company called Immediate Action um, Events who were running the fan dance. Um, and For in, those who aren't aware what the fan dance is, it's one of the tests yeah. on selection, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, nasty. We turn up on heels, yeah, heels phase, 24 kilometres up and over. Yeah. Penny van twice, the Brecon Beacons. Yeah, we we used to do it when we was lanyard training and yeah. stuff like that. Certainly not under the conditions that Lloydie would have done it, yeah. or or any of the other guys that are uh, 
on selection there. Regardless, the highest peak around that area in Brecon? Eight, eight, six metres. Yeah. It's disgusting, it's really, grim, when it? you think about it. I don't know why I keep going back, other than the fact that obviously there's this like tribute element of why I do. I mean, I don't do it competitively anymore. I kind of just go up now and I'm just kind of help out on the, the MST side of yeah, things. Yeah, I saw you doing that yeah. on your Instagram, it's helping them out. gives me a... Well, cause that, that, I mean, it was a big thing for me and it's like, that's kind of where the 100 Peaks was born from in so much as that I remember after my first one in the summer of 2014, I was supposed to do the winter one, but we just found out about Charlie and obviously Cassie's hormones were all through the roof and it was like that winter where it was really disgusting and it wasn't so much like actually doing the event over over the beacon, over the, the beacon itself. It was like literally getting there because the amount of snow that was on the ground but all over the place and it was pretty disgusting conditions so I ended up saying I ended up actually it was about two o'clock in the morning saying I'm not going to do it literally and I was getting up at five to travel so I kind of thought I've, I've, she's going nuts here and there's no way I can leave my my upper half in the hormonal state she was thinking about this baby that's coming yeah. in nine months time you're all off yeah. Climbing up the mountains in the And she's the worried snow. about me not coming home kind yeah. of thing. And or obviously something happening. So I didn't actually do it until the, the summer of that, that following winter. And um, it took me six hours and 47 minutes. And it was the most disgusting thing I've ever done. <laughs> um, There's a guy, I, I chatted to a guy at work and, and some other people who do the, the yeah. guy called Nick Vincent who I work with who does the event. And that it is green, right? Yeah. Well, that year as well, it was bloody hot. That summer, it was bloody hot. And then my pack went 55 pounds because I had the best part of seven litres of water in there as well. And obviously, I was still carrying a fair bit of timber at the time. And of course, my staple at the time was because you believe that's what you need is buckets and buckets of Jaffa cakes and jelly babies. Yeah. You know, so you're just full of crap in, in your burger as well as having all this water. And I just remember that first climb, you're thinking, why am I here? What, what, yeah. what? I chose this. I paid. Did you pay for yeah. it? <laughs> no, I mean, luck, I mean, that's the wonderful thing is that this is why I'm quite so readily help and volunteer for the MST is because I've always had a guest place, which is quite something. You to pay that back a little bit. Yeah. yeah, no, exactly. And it's it's enabled me, the, the people that run it, the guys that run it, and obviously that's enabled me to become the person I am now as a result of taking on these sort of tests so and i've made so many incredible friends as a result of that these sort of events and it's just nice for me to be on the hill with these guys and they see a friendly face when they're hanging out and you've been there haven't you? yeah so. exactly so and i mean that literally at the end of that well i don't even think it was the end of that first event i kind of turned around to a mate and said do you reckon we could sort of tab all the all the tallest peaks in the uk some of the greatest ideas are born yeah, when of you're at your your lowest lowest <laughs> point and you decide to set a bigger challenge yeah. of uh, of what yeah. you're going to do. Yeah. So you're at your lowest. Yeah. You're on the fan dance <laughs> and 100 Peaks is born. Tell yeah. me about it. What is 100 Peaks? Uh, it was a very good idea. Um, <laughs> Aren't yeah. they all? Turning around to a mate and saying, I think we should, yeah, could we tab the 100 of the tallest peaks? Well, actually, I said all of the tallest peaks in the UK. And then I've, I've, I've talked about this on a on a podcast previously, and it's like, 
you do your Wikipedia search because yeah, Wikipedia is the source of, of, of all, all knowledge. All knowledge. Yeah. And it like Wikipedia lists 110. And 110 times it sounds a bit shit, doesn't it? So yeah. it got whittled down to 100. But actually, when you actually do a search of the tallest peaks in the UK above 610 metres, which became like 2,000 feet, became like the, 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 the it must be a minimum of 2,000 feet. Okay. Um, there's 800 oh, peaks wow. in the UK above 2,000 feet. I wouldn't. Um, I didn't know that. Uh, it's quite extensive. Yeah. And then obviously, and I looked, started looking at it logistically, because I, I, it wasn't so much that I, I've considered this as a challenge. It was more like I wanted to do something, but didn't really know what it was. And then actually, the dates became more of a driver, in so much as I wanted to do something, signifying the dates that Lloyd of that last tour of Lloydie. So actually, starting on the day that he left and finishing on the day he was killed, and. See, that's what the hundred peaks became. It's sort of literally right. Okay, I want to do. I want to tab hundred of the tallest peaks in the UK under my own steam, um, and then obviously when you start looking at logistically, that's just it's nonsensical because you actually think right. I want the tallest hundred peaks. They're all over the bloody place. It's like you'd be travelling for a day just to to get to one. So it became a like right. How do we piece this together to turn it into a challenge that is actually potentially achievable but still has that f essence of failure well not failure failure is not the right word but you know it it had to be tough in the appropriate kind of way to be a proper tribute to Lloydie over the course of that month it would have been no good just walking a hundred pigs no, that you no. pick at that closest to your house exactly. and then yeah Getting and home and saying thank yeah. you. It, it, yeah, I think it, maybe you're right. Maybe the fear of failure is the right way of putting yeah. it. But it had to. It it must have needed to feel like I could balls this up at some yeah. point. And it would be relatively insurmountable because you kind of think actually, if you're doing, you, it's okay if you're going out and doing like say the fan dance and you know that you've got X amount of time to do that in, and next day you're going to be home. But you're kind of right. We're going to do this every day. For 25 days and I kind of didn't really know what that looked like or what that felt like until the first day in the hills and then you kind of get a rude awakening and um so obviously when I started piecing it together I think okay right I want to go to the highlands I want to go to the lakes I want to go to Snowdonia um and obviously I want to finish in Brecon I want to finish on Penny Van yeah. on the last date because that's the only way to finish it and um Obviously, so you start looking at like relatively known or relatively known routes in some age that you're trying to pick off anywhere from five to I don't know. I mean, one day we picked off twelve peaks over the course of I think we were out thirteen hours um, and did something like thirteen thousand feet of ascent and twelve thousand feet of descent. Some going in it. It is because actually, again, until you do these sort of um, do these sort of challenges you don't kind of I never anticipated how much elevation or that you'd actually lose every bit of elevation that you gained when you're doing the Munros and you're doing the stuff in the Lake District every time you go up you're coming down the same down, yeah. <laughs> before you go up the next one so it was yeah. like you kind of I had this wonderful fuzzy vision in my head that would just be skipping from peak to peak of just cycling in between maybe it. that's the a good thing <laughs> maybe that's why you managed to do it well it was because I looked at like the first day I kind of just said to the guys right okay because the idea was always notionally that we would 
cycle between each region. But we'd also, in between, to give ourselves a bit of a rest, have a, a, a cycle tour of the area. And I always, I still laugh at that now, and I, I know the guys probably won't thank me for it, but I always sold it as a rest day because we were sitting on our asses yeah. just cycling for seven or eight hours. <laughs> that old, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it was kind of, it was the first day in the hills, and we did, um, obviously, we were getting Ben Nevis, and it was like day two. And we just, literally, as you're coming up to Ben Nevis to go up the conventional route, there was a path off going left to a little peak that I can never pronounce, but it's at 700 metres. And the terrain is crap. So we got myself, we got ourselves on it, bagged the peak, and then literally we'd sort of dropping round onto the, like, to pick up the route to go onto the Carmel Jerry Garrett round onto Ben Nevis. And we were doing five that day. I remember we dropped down that first peak and that was the first realisation of it. Of we're looking at this hill and you're trying to climb the best part of a thousand metres in literally about a mile and a half. And I just looked at my mate Scotty and I said, what the fuck? <laughs> what have we, we done? done? Yeah, what have we and done? And you're kind of thinking, but it, it's kind of weird because, I mean, that, that was kind of the only time that I kind of had that thought other than one of the days in, in the lakes where you, it felt like it was going to be a massive struggle and it was a massive struggle, but I kind of, after about three or four days, you're kind of getting conditioned to it quite yeah. quickly. You've isolated yourself from probably most of your other distractions yeah. that are going on. So yeah. work emails are not coming no, through. Exactly. Your brain's free for yeah. organization of your route, yeah. food, probably number one, water, stretching. Well, luckily, kit. I mean, we were looked after in terms of, because we had a support team with us. So they were feeding us. So literally we had, other than just sort of getting ourselves into, into the right mindset for the day after or the, the next day and sorting our kit and getting make sure that we were like up to speed with the route and everything else that we were planning on taking. I mean, we didn't always take the planned route. I mean, it was there weren't conventional routes. There were some conventional routes where we followed routes that other climbers might have or other people might have taken. But essentially, we got to the point where we were thinking, you know what, why are we going to add another couple of miles here if we think we're strong enough to go. Well, you heard Christy and Erwan saying, mm. I'm not going yeah. that way because them two miles yeah. are additional. I need to yeah. go the route that I'm, I'm set. Hers exactly. was slightly due to a lack of I mean, sometimes geography. But... It, it, sometimes you think, and again, you kind of spot, I remember actually the long day where I just, we were talking about, like, where we did like the 12 peaks and that was the day in the lakes where we started off at Eel Crag and the intention was to get to the slate mines over to the other side of Grey Knots. And um, me and Scotty, we literally, we we literally come off of Scarfell Pike, and you got Mickledore in front of you. You're going on to Scarfell, and we're looking at one another, thinking, "Are we going to get up this thing?" Because there's no actual route up onto that, onto Scarfell from that side, other than a little tiny sheep track that you have to drop down into the valley for to pick up. Pick back up. And we missed it, so of course we're picking each other up and over boulders that are covered in moss and shit and everything yeah. else with nothing underneath us. And I remember sitting in this little crevasse that I'd managed to wedge myself into at one point where I hadn't got enough reach to pull myself up completely, even with his help. Thinking, this is it. Yeah. This is it. That's the end of the challenge. She's going to be well happy with this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's like, so we got past that. I mean, I just sat there and said, I need five minutes just to sort my head out and just think about this. And just sat there in this, like, this little crevice sort of wedged in, just sort of composing myself. Got myself sorted. We got up onto onto Scarfell. 
I thought, okay, the day can't get any more tough, can't get any tougher than that. And we went over the other side of Wasdale Head onto U Barrow and started picking up the other route, uh, the other peaks on the other side. And we got up to, to Great Gable. And we hadn't picked a conventional route to go up Great Gable. We just went up the north face of it. And it's all moving scree face. Like for six, seven hundred metres, you're like Spider-Man and up this yeah, thing with everything just away. moving underneath. And you're just, what the fuck are you doing this? What, really? What is this? And it's like, and sort of most days had that sort of sense of, mortal peril and as as silly as it sounds and on reflection you think well we could have made it a lot easier but I'm kind of glad right well, l- luckily nothing went wrong yeah you might but, have been saying something different yeah there, but... exactly but by the same token that sense of what we achieved on certain on certain of those days means that I actually got it right in terms of how tough I wanted how, to make how you it wanted it to be because even the cycle elements of it were tough. Because, I mean, every single day we got on the bike. I mean, the, the challenge started with a 74-mile bike ride. And I just that's just a nice, easy day. We cycled down from the Moray Firth to Fort William just to start the challenge off. To start off. it off. And, um, and even that was a bit of a slog. And it's like 74 miles. I don't think any of us are sort of... We'd sort of had some big rides. But, I mean, I'd done a 65-mile uh, a ride before that. But that was the biggest I think I'd done. And it's like, right, so 74 miles the first day. The next ride was 120, and we're working all the way up to a, like a ride that was 188 miles. Wow. And it was like, yeah. You kind of realise, so, yeah, quickly what you've So how on. did that feel on that final day of the, the 100 peaks where you've got to climb up the fan? Yeah. Given the reason behind this as well, with, with Lloyd the tribute. Yeah. It was the significance of the fan dance with regards to where he'd been. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, it's quite, it's quite strange as well because originally when I thought about how we were going to finish the challenge, it sort of, we were going to just go up to the fan and, and that, that would have been it. To the top. To the top. And I remember thinking, you, we can't do it like that. We've got to try, we've got to do it as the fan dance. Got to do the actual over so, and back. Yeah. So although we, we kind of, Although we can't, we did the high moon route, so you literally go up onto onto the the back of back face onto six four two and then drop down into six four two and then back onto the Roman road and then back onto Penny Van Summit. So that's what we ended up doing. So we did the fan dance in essence, but kind of in reverse. And um, obviously that that day the families were all planning on meeting us on the summit. Obviously Charlie was just, Charlie was three and a half at the time. And I kind of expected to get a message from Kaz saying, no, nah, he's, he's having a sit-in protest. Couldn't get up there. <laughs> no, he couldn't get up there. But, I mean, I literally got on the summit. I had no message at all. And literally, as I got onto the summit and I'm walking across to get to the, like, literally, I've got on the top of Jacob's Ladder. And guys have obviously started to come and, um, and greet us. And as I'm walking towards the summit marker, he's just climbing up the other side and on the conventional route from Pont Da. Yeah, from down the bottom. Um, absolutely loaded up on squashies. Yeah. Um, but absolutely, I mean, he'd made his, his way all the way up there. And it's just sort of, I remember seeing him and I'm just glad I had my my Oakley still on because I think I was uh, a little bit broken at that point. A few point. tears. Because you can, obviously, the, the realisation that the challenge was complete was actually the night before. Because on 
the, the challenge for me in terms of actually bagging 100 peaks was almost in jeopardy on the Monday before we, the, at the beginning of that week because I went down with pretty bad, um, we can't, don't know if it was food poisoning or just some sort of really bad bug, but I woke up in the middle of the night almost shat on Scotty's head. Everything, <laughs> everything was coming out. And it was like, I was just, I'd made a mess of everything. It was really, I won't go to, obviously, you don't need to go into the graphic details, but I was just in an absolute bit. And luckily, one of my mates who was on, who'd actually joined us for that week in Snowdonia was a paramedic, luckily or unluckily, but he actually said, you're not going on the mountain. You're not going out today. You need to stay in bed. You need to rehydrate. You need to get yeah. some fluids back inside you. You need to get you salted up, everything, and just get you right. Just hopefully, fingers crossed, that you'll be okay tomorrow. And lucky the next day I did go out. I mean, I didn't feel great, but I still bagged nine peaks. But it meant instead of obviously cycling on the Thursday down to Brecon with the rest of the guys, I had to go back out with Scotty. To find another peak. To, to find missed. or bag the peaks. that We had eight peaks to bag because I was on 91. So I had to go out and bag like the, the additional route. The eight that you'd, you'd missed. I'd missed. And um, it was great because from about day from day four or five, Scotty and I, we'd split, there was four of us originally, but we'd split the team up because we, we were starting to find, obviously, we were waiting a bit of time on summits. So to, it, it became quickly a realisation that we, we might struggle to get the 100 peaks if we'd all sort of stayed Stay together. Because you're kind of getting to the point where you're sort of struggling to get the days done and all the days are just sort of, you, you're losing your rest days and things like that that we'd planned and obviously those transition days then we'd have to be in the hills as opposed to cycling and have to van it to the next area which is really what I didn't want to do but we got to I remember just getting to peak 99 with Scotty and just looking at each other and just sort of almost breaking down without breaking down yeah. and no word said and it's just it was just such an incredible moment so obviously the realisation that the challenge was complete was pretty much on the night before because we'd done the night it was literally Fan summit to, one more to go the next yeah. day so i mean it was just almost i wanted that friday to be a celebration of completing the challenge and obviously a celebration of lloydy i didn't want to be it to be like sort of balls out still still, still part of the slog still, yeah still part of the slog which yeah. was great because obviously that's what it turned out to be and obviously all of our families were sitting or at the summit waiting for us and and obviously, in the top it all off, the little man had got himself up there as well. That's amazing. And, I mean, I had to carry him all the way back down. I was going to say, stick him in the bag, mate, and get him down, but he got up there. But he got up there, which, which is now, obviously, when he starts telling me he's got tired legs, I said, dude, you can't even throw that about anymore. You climbed your first mountain at three and a half, ain't having it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was just going back to that, the, the day that you, you almost missed, I think. 92 peaks doesn't sound quite no, as good as 100. No, it, it doesn't have a ring no, to it. Mr. Mr. 92 peaks doesn't yeah, sound right, does it? Yeah, I missed eight, sorry. But, um, <laughs> so you, you, you've completed 100 peaks and, and then the Be a Black Sheep comes around. Yeah. How did but, all that start? With the, the, the biggest thing that I, I, I'll ever take from what the 100 peaks achieved, it's not just obviously the, the challenge itself and obviously the tribute to Lloydie, but the amount of people it engaged in terms of people were looking at what we were doing in terms of the training and the challenge itself and they were actually going out and improving their own lot as in that they were following the training programs that we were doing they were getting involved they were actually wanting to be part of the challenge either if it, they were coming out for a day during the, the challenge itself or coming out for a period so of time so it was starting to have an it was inspirational start, yeah it was starting people. to yeah it was starting to really snowball into quite a 
quite a big sphere of people and obviously it originally started with those guys that I met on doing Paris 10 event and then the fan dance and things like that and obviously it just sort of grew from there and it became very evident that on some level it was inspiring people just to go out and sort of improve themselves a bit and it kind of obviously that's where the black sheep came from it was well what do we do with that with that impetus what do we do with that ethos and I still don't entirely know what I'm doing with it, I'll be honest, but it's obviously collectively, it's it's created a collective group of people that have just got this ethos of trying to be the best version of themselves. And I think really that's kind of, obviously where I started with this, is that obviously in dealing with, trying to deal with the grief of losing Lloydie, knowing that I needed to sort myself out physically for my own health, and obviously enable me to deal with losing Lloydie in a positive way. Obviously that just became a catalyst for, I guess, other people. I think it's a massively tr- like, fitting tribute mm. that you can take up those things and start to inspire someone. And that whatever their better version of themselves is, whether that's just going out yeah. for a couple of miles yeah. or whether it's a kickabout in the park, yeah. it doesn't. And one of the things I've spoken to people about on here, they're listening to people who are, you know, in some way extremists and yeah. some of the challenges just aren't there for no. everyone, whether there's always, you know, some there's limitations to, to some people's ability levels and, yeah. and that's fine. But I think when you start to move or create movements that inspire people just to be better than they were yeah. maybe the day before. It's about setting your own bar. And this is the way I've always thought it. Because I, I, in my little like videos that I put out, I, it is, it's always not about being the fittest, the strongest. It's about just those daily incremental improvements that you can make in yourself just by believing that you can improve yourself. And it's just, like you say, you, you go out and you might run a mile one day, and the next day you'll do two miles. It's that little bar setting. Yeah. And this is what's so... It, in- some of the things that I've learned, and, and this is what's been amazing about doing these podcasts, I have learned so much. Some of the things I knew already, but I yeah. needed to kick up the ass to remind me what they were. Things like that where it doesn't really matter what the number is or yeah. what the 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 boundary is that you've set, yeah. as long as the next day... You try and do a little bit yeah. more, whether that's one press up turns into five, exactly. turns into ten. It doesn't matter. Not everybody is gonna ride solo and support it. Lands into John O'Groats. Not everybody's climbing a hundred peaks. Yeah. It just might not work for you. Yeah. But if you can wake up and, and and the bit that is clear in every single one of these individuals and on our first meeting together today is massively clear from you, is it every single person that I've spoken to, it starts with positive mindset. It does. That's the first place we all have to go. That's your biggest asset at the end of the day, that and a bit of heart. Yeah, a little bit of grit in there yeah, as well. Exactly, and you need that, and you probably need that in pretty big doses at times, because we know when the weather's shit, the yeah. last thing you want to be doing is lacing up your running shoes or getting the the cycling kit on because it's bloody disgusting but what it feels like when but, you get home yeah, exactly is, is that's you yeah. can't buy that no, feeling can you when you get home and no, it's done you can't um, so mr hundred peaks you said you don't know where it's going but it's going somewhere <laughs> it's going somewhere so what would you like to see happen with it uh, sorry black sheep sorry not yeah. hundred peaks well they're, they're almost the same thing aren't they i mean i'd still actually like to do i'd still like to push the hundred peaks into turn it into something that i know is potentially achievable for a lot of people whether it's broken down into individual challenges within the challenge itself and or obviously 
with the Black Sheep events, we're putting on events now. So obviously we do a tribute event on the weekend of when Lloydie was killed, where we do the Black Sheep Marathon, which is trying to aim for getting people to do 20 reps of Jacob's Ladder in the Peak District. Yeah. Um, we're also doing Beauty and the Beast in April on Lloydie's birthday weekend, which is Beauty is 30 mile ultra and Beast is the same 30 mile ultra, but with 35 pounds. So consecutive days, Saturday, Sunday or something, is that? Well, is yeah, that... yeah, there's kind of, there's a, uh, on, it's it's planned to be just a, a one day event, um, Beauty and the Beast. So there'll be cutoffs on, okay. on that. But the guys will have an opportunity to choose a, a shorter route or a longer route, depending yeah. on how they're feeling on the day. So we've kind of got a route. My good friend, John Nicholson, who's helped me put together the Black Sheep events. And actually, to be fair, he's sort of run with most things. I'm kind of, as he says, I'm just the face. Yeah. I mean, he's based up there and sort of, obviously we base all of the stuff that we've done so far out of there um, because he's local to the area and, and knows, knows the terrain. And obviously I go up there when I can, but it's um, we've got some really nice stuff going on in terms of those sort of events that we're trying to encourage people to join. So it's, again, that's all about setting your own bar. I mean, you might not do the 20 reps. We've had many people three people complete the 20 reps in its true form with the with the pack we've had another couple that have done it like drop the pack off halfway and carried on or we've had people turn up and just see how many reps they can crack out which is brilliant awesome i mean i always said i didn't believe that it'd have longevity because you think what sort of idiot wants to, to walk up, up and down yeah jacob's ladder 20 times and actually the three miles to it and then the three miles back you'd be surprised how many people out there <laughs> oh yeah no are stupid I'm, yes no, uh, are willing to put themselves yes. through those challenges. we figured that out because yeah. they're different i mean that is a really that's a mental challenge i mean yes you do have to be have some level of fitness but the great thing about that one is that you don't need to be at the top of your game with it it is about Again, pretty much setting your own bar. If you do one rep and you get yourself back down, yeah, brilliant. Well done. Yeah. You just go for two next time. So what's next for you? What's next for me? Um, I'm still doing marathons. I've got Manchester at the beginning of April. Then Milton Keynes at the beginning of May, which I'm an ambassador for. So um, we've got hot, but it put it back from Cornwall because we've got a wedding on the Friday. Oh, wow. No <laughs> boozing, mate. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and then, um, if you're the ambassador for that, well, then you don't yeah, necessarily no. have to go at the same pace you would on the No, other no, ones. no, that's exactly. And I've got waving to yeah. all your fans. <laughs> well, there's lots of people actually have signed up um, for that one as well. Lots of friends, so I, I might be taking it a little bit easier, and I probably would be because Manchester's the focus. And then later in the year, I complete my Abbott World Marathon Majors in New York, so that will be the last of the big ones done. Um, and then next year. <laughs> We're not going to talk about that. We don't want to announce stuff live yeah. on the podcast. 2021 might be slightly different. Let's let's watch that space. Yeah. I'm excited so. to see what comes of it. I really am. So, a couple of little questions that I've yeah. asked everybody at the end of the uh, of the of the podcast that we've done. What's the best advice you've ever been given? Best advice: surround yourself with those that are better than you. I think. I know Lloydie took stock in it. I know a lot of people that Lloydie moved in the same sort of circles. They took a lot of stock from that too. And I'm not just sort of throwing that just because it's Lloydie, but I know from my own um, my own point of view in the last few years with the sort of 
people that I've come into contact with that actually these people are not, they're not aiming to be better than you because they're in a better they're, they're in a in a different state to you they actually are actively trying to encourage you to be the best you can be and I, I did that with the challenge with 100 pigs I kind of set myself a benchmark for where I wanted to be based on a couple of friends that I had who were just the most incredible humble human beings but they were phenomenal athletes you know and I kind of just bedded myself into that sort of mindset with them as my sort of goal to be obviously throwing Lloydie into the mix of that as well and it is just about yeah I think surround yourself with those sort of people yeah because they'll always encourage you to be those those individuals they're only competing against themselves yeah Exactly. They want you to be as good as you yeah. can be. It's yeah. not they're not treading on you to keep you yeah. down. They're not trying to push you places yeah. you don't want to go. They give you the the encouragement to yeah. be which was what you said, which was to be better than you was yesterday, yeah. to to be better a better version of yourself. Exactly that. It's amazing advice. So we have to ask what's the worst advice? What's the worst advice? <laughs> don't do a hundred peaks. Don't yeah. Get, I think Cas Cas said to you, don't do this, and you did. But generally, we don't take that advice. No, we don't have no, to, no, we don't have to take that advice. Um, oh, worst. I, I think actually, yeah, you don't need to fill yourself up on jaffa cakes when you're out in the hills. <laughs> okay. So anyone else who's listening and you're about to do this, don't eat chocolate well, biscuits. I mean, well, no, I was gonna say it's fine. I, I remember the days when I used to take a cheeky Nando's. Actually, to be take fair. it with you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> have it halfway. But I mean, I think once once you actually learn how to sort of deal with nutrition when you're doing these sort of things, you've earned very, very quickly. I mean, I it was very evident after about a year that I was bringing home all the stuff that I thought I needed to. Thought you needed anywhere. And yeah, you find very quickly actually you can survive pretty well and just being sensible when you're uh, with your nutrition as you would be before you build up to these sort of events. So yeah. I would take Jaffa Cakes and Jelly Babies because they're great for morale. There's no doubt about it, but yeah. not as a... Um... Sustainable food source <laughs> for the whole journey. Yeah. Unless it was just to soak up the WKDs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to just say thank you, mate. I really do. I don't, I'm really struggling for words to wrap this up. Um, our first time sitting in a room together, face-to-face. -to -face. It's been pretty cool. And you've, you've spoke some stuff there, mate, that... I genuinely have nothing but admiration for you for the way that you've dealt with one of the most tragic events that could ever happen to someone. And you've then used that as a catalyst to become better as yourself, to bring up your children, to be a better person, to be a better husband. And genuinely, mate, you inspire me on a regular basis, even if it's just the video clips from Instagram and the odd message that we share here and there. I just want to say thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you for hosting me today here in London. It's been an absolute pleasure. Pleasure's and I hope you'll allow me to buy you a pint. <laughs> pleasure's mine, Even buddy. if you don't drink during the week. <laughs> Cheers, mate. Thank Cheers, you very buddy. much. Thank you. Thank you. Humbled. <laughs>